Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. My name is Ashley Giordano. I'm senior editor at Overland Journal and Expedition Portal. And today we are at Overland Expo West in Flagstaff, Arizona in the Black Series podcast studio with two special guests, Ernesto and Thais of Overland, the Americas. Welcome, guys. I'm so excited to have a great chat with you today. Thank you. Hi, Ashley. So you guys have an amazing story. You drove from Seattle all the way down the Pan-American Highway to South America and really dove into some unique countries down there that don't necessarily get hit as often by Overlanders. Give me a little rundown on your trip. And a special thanks to Frontrunner for supporting this week's podcast. Looking for adventure at a moment's notice? Introducing the new Slim Sport Roof Rack from Frontrunner. A low-profile, sleek alternative that's perfect for hauling sports equipment one day and driving the streets the next. Whether the day in the wild calls for camping, mountain bikes, sea gear, paddleboard, or just a few storage bags, the Slim Sport makes it easier to get there. Here's some key Slim Sport features. It's got a low-profile design to minimize drag noise and allow for easier access to low-clearance garages. It has T-slots in the high-strength aluminum slats that allow you to use most of Frontrunner's top-mount accessories. Side-mount accessories are accommodated through available rack mounting brackets. It's also got the ability to add any of Frontrunner's 55-plus accessories to the Slim Sport so you can set up your rack for any adventure. Choosing your next adventure has never been easier with the new Slim Sport Roof Rack. Slim Sport is available for select vehicle models. Visit FrontrunnerOutfitters.com to learn more. Yes. Uh, in 2015, Thais and I embarked on this trip from Seattle, Washington to the tip of the continent, uh, made it all the way down to Ushuaia. And our goal was really to try to travel all 23 contiguous countries in the Americas, um, which includes those three countries that you're talking about, three nations, really, French Guyana, Suriname, and Guyana. It also includes my home country where I was born, uh, Venezuela, which is kind of difficult to uh, travel for a lot of uh, people right now. So, And we really enjoyed Brazil. Not everyone has the chance to kind of tackle Brazil, but we highly recommend it. It's a big country too. What yes. were your favorite parts? I think that people, not parts, more people, Brazil, mm-hmm. they, they're really charming. What's really charming about Brazil? We kind of gravitate around the mountains and Brazil is not a country that uh, is known for uh, pole mountains still very beautiful. There are areas where you can find some beautiful canyons, like it sort of resembles Utah, a little bit more lush with some of the the vegetation, but like sort of like deserty type uh, landscapes. Uh, But people really, I think this is what impacted us the most, Uh, all from the the south to the very north of the country where like it gets very rural. People were always charming. Awesome. So I want to go back in time a little bit because there's like quite a lead up to this trip that I think is really important and interesting. And I want to go back to your time in Venezuela and how you two met because Tais is from the U.S. So you're from Venezuela. Share the story if you wish about how you met. I'll take it away and of course Adesto feel free to jump in because we have two different stories. but Two different I, versions. Two different versions um, but I studied abroad in Venezuela my junior year of college. I lived with a Venezuelan family and I was studying Spanish was my minor and geography is my major and I got to do some awesome classes of botany of the Andes in Spanish. So it was a great opportunity for me to really learn a ton, experience the culture by living with a family. And in the evenings, I might have gone out every single night um, with fellow other Americans, uh, students in the Ernesto bar. And I was studying Spanish and he was studying English and uh, the rest was history. There's more in there. Yeah, I guess it's one of those moments where 
I got super lucky that I got to meet Ernesto that night. I was almost not going to go out that night. I took a yoga class and I was like, I'm going to go home tonight and not go to the bar. But <laughs> then I saw my friend and um, got to meet him. Where was this in Venezuela? In the Andes, in a beautiful university town called Merida, Venezuela. So there's a second version to this story. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I will even go a little bit further back. The reason why it, I was in that city is I experienced um, a life changing event. Um, I had a terrible car accident, car accident that um, really changed the direction of you know my plans and what I was doing. So I was doing architecture school. After the accident, I fell behind. I spent six months recovering. And my dad, after that, was like pretty adamant, it's like making sure that I made up for the time that I had lost. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to travel to the U.S., transfer my uh, credits from architecture school. And one of the first steps was moving to the city, Merida, where I had a condo uh, that was uh, under our names, my sister and I, with the intention of selling it to be able to pay for uh, college. So I was there, uh, focused on doing that, uh, studying in English. Not going out every night. Not going out every <laughs> night for once. <laughs> a friend uh, of mine from college showed up on my door. He had broke up with his girlfriend and he needed some emotional support and I really didn't know what to do. So I just said, okay, uh, let's go to a bar. That's where Thaisa and her friend Shelly were. And uh, yeah, that's that was the beginning of our 20 plus year relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and Ernesto said to me that first night, oh, I really want to move to the States, specifically Seattle, to study graphic design. I also love the music scene. And I was like, cool, I'm from Jersey. I'd never been to the West Coast. And who knew that I was then, not that much longer later, like I guess six months later after I graduated, I ended up following Ernesto because he got into a graphic design school in Seattle. And then again, that was history from there. Yeah, I was going to ask you because you obviously would have finished up your program in Venezuela and gone back to the U.S. and how you reunited in the U.S. Did you keep in contact during that time? Or As Taisa said, my plans were to go to Seattle. I had done some research again, you know, mountain lover, hiking. I also asked about English, you know, accents and how big the Hispanic community was. I, I actually was pursuing, you know, the opposite, a place where there weren't too many Hispanic people for me to be able to learn English a little bit faster. I love the idea of like having Canada right, right there. The mountains uh, always calling and the music scene for sure was a big uh, influence. I grew up 90s, uh, Generation X. I loved all the the grunge scene and I joke that like I moved to Seattle because of Pearl Jam in the end it's true slash Ernesto a little bit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so you guys spent some time in Venezuela would you well obviously you spent a lot of time there because you grew up there but did that overlanding culture that's so prevalent there did that have any influence over what you ended up doing later in your life or did something else kind of spark when you were in the U.S.? That's a great question. I think subconsciously, yeah. I think that it was so um, ingrained and normal. Uh, four by fours in Venezuela are like so common and have been for generations. Like my, even when my dad was in college, his first truck was a 55 series, an iron pig. And it was a toddler, right? My dad was in college uh, doing environmental engineering. He had uh, founded this search and rescue team and they got donated this truck. And as, as a kid, I was just like, remember uh, vaguely just like standing up in that like, bench seat which is you know on the truck going up to the mountains and camping and uh, even 
smaller. I was like in my dad's backpack while while he was fishing. There's tons of photos <laughs> like this little little guy in the back of the, of his backpack. Uh, so uh, nature, I think it would be, you know, the first influence. I grew up around trucks. I never thought anything of it. Never thought of anything special about Land Cruisers and like this stuff. But a lot of my friends in high school had trucks in the, back in the 90s, they had um, rooftop tents and they travel across the country to go to an area of the country called like Gran Sabana, where there is very little infrastructure. It's a massive national park. It's, it's gorgeous. So I think that was kind of like the first time of like the car camping. Isn't that wild? You know, I think overlanding kind of picked up in North America way after that in terms of like, you know, the first time we've all seen a rooftop tent, but actually it was going on in Venezuela. Like you said, so much earlier than that. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even called overlanding, right? Right. I mean, no one, people was just like, let's do a road trip and just go camping. That's great. So interesting. I think sometimes we don't necessarily know the history of overlanding in other countries going back that far and further. So it's pretty cool to hear about different experiences that different people had sleeping in rooftop tents before they came over to the States and to Canada. And the four by four culture was so big. You know, that's what most people refer to as like four by four races. There was a race that was very, very well funded. The logistics of it were impressive. In fact, uh, it was called a fun race. You can still go on YouTube and, and check them out. Chopper support. Like oh, wow. Camp, yeah, they're pretty cool. I would go and say that probably Australia, Malaysia, and Venezuela, that four by four culture and competitions. I, I wasn't aware of that, but like, you know, I later became aware of the, like how prevalent that was. So you guys got together. You're in Seattle. You're working. You went to school for graphic design. I'm trying to get an idea of like, what was your life like before you made this big decision to go on this great adventure? So Ernesto finished graphic design school and got a, a great job in Seattle. I decided to go to California to pursue my graduate studies in, in uh, international environmental policy. And then I came back and got a job working for the state doing just that. And so I was working uh, graphic design jobs, just paying stuff off, you know, applying what we've learned, but then feeling kind of unfulfilled. Yeah, I was wondering what that moment was when you realized that this was something that you wanted to do and who that came from. Was it both of you? Yeah. How did that happen? I'll go a little bit back again. So yes. uh, as a kid, I had these, uh, I was always drawn to like world culture. I don't think that I was a weird kid, weird, weird kid, but maybe I was. I started collecting stamps and paper currency and coins. And I was always fascinated by like the images like shown in, in these. Like, who is this queen? Where is this landscape? What does this mean? I don't understand what this language is. And uh, just, just as music, I was something no one really actually, it was like something very natural. But you know, as a kid, you just travel with your, your parents. When I made it to college... I decided I made it a point to travel overseas at least once a year being in Venezuela. And when I moved to the United States to go to school, that actually happened. You know, I was traveling abroad, but really what I was doing was just like visiting back home. And my mother lives in Italy. So I would just kind of do one year in Venezuela and South America, one year in Europe. And, you know, you start like traveling a little bit more here and there. Two weeks were didn't feel that it was enough and starting to look at, you know, yeah, I like this thing. I want to keep traveling. And after I studied abroad in Venezuela, I always knew that I wanted to see more of South America. And um, I studied geography and I was always interested in like the intersect between people and place. So I think in my heart, I always knew I wanted to travel the world and definitely Central and South America more. I just loved the culture and the language. So we kind of knew that we wanted to do that. 
but felt like, well, we got these degrees and now it's time to like pay those off and also like work, right? But then, you know, it quickly, quickly changed into like seven years at that same job. And we wanted more. We wanted to see the world. I did quite a bit of backpacking in Europe when I went to visit my family. And, you know, kind of every year we're reminded of how good it felt just to experience something different. I kind of craved and was waiting for that to accrue those two or three weeks of vacation just to go and travel overseas. And then I thought, weirdly enough, somehow like this drone to South America and Venezuela, you know, I, I feel that I don't know my culture well enough. Something that started happening. But then you look at uh, Latin America or South America and it's it's massive. It's huge. Mm -hmm. um, how do you do that? The infrastructure is not that such as Europe. It's not as easy. I mean, it's doable, but I wanted to kind of like get deeper into it. Like, okay, I don't want to do just like the sightseeing in, in the cities. How can we travel and get a little bit more remote. And then Ernesto was the one who pitched the idea and he'll tell you, I think, in a moment who inspired him. And when he pitched it to me, I thought, long road trip, I have backpacking experience and hiking experience. And I don't know, the thought of car camping or like a long road trip wasn't that appealing to me because, I don't know, like family road trips, not the best. <laughs> But then... I realized that way of travel was going to provide much more freedom to do that hiking and backpacking. So I'll let Arraso take it away from here. Yeah, I think it was this uh, seed of like, is it possible to actually drive all the way down? There's something called the Pan American Highway. I mean, is that real? How feasible is it? So we started kind of like putting together back in the day. We're talking, I mean, it took us forever to leave. So we are maybe in 2008 when we started fiddling with the whole idea. And you um, had actually a coworker. This is so cool. I love this story so much because you're at work and it was like a coworker that suggested this to you. So you're like at your place of work is where you got the idea to like leave work. <laughs> yes. Which is yes, fun. Exactly. So we uh, we were like definitely uncertain that uh, such thing could be done be, because you will look online and, and terms like overlanding are like, you know, from uh, the U.S. to South America. I mean, nothing really kind of connected. Yes, uh, you can you can travel to Mexico. And then I sort of like put it together. So like, okay, if I start looking at capitals, uh, they have to be connected in a way to the rest of the country and to borders. Right. So I started thinking more and more about it. And I started sharing with co-workers and family like very early on. They got very tired about, you know, hearing this, this thing. It's like, come on already. <laughs> uh, but one of my co-workers mentioned that in the 70s, which I thought was very uh, interesting because like Central America uh, was going through unrest, uh, Colombia, Peru, and even Chile, where they, they, they were from. You know, it wasn't all rosy back then. She traveled as a very young kid with their parents in a Volkswagen Beetle all the way to uh, Chile. That was the moment I thought, if they did it then in a Volkswagen Beetle, it can be done now. Wait, and how many people in that Volkswagen again? Because uh, that was the crazy part. I thought. A, a parents and three siblings. Incredible. I, I, I couldn't believe it, but like she started you know, just kind of elaborating on like the, the things that she re vaguely remember being so little. Hardcore. Yeah. Epic trip. So you had this idea that this was possible. And got more into, okay, let's piece it together because uh, you're not going to enter it in Google Maps. There weren't like many books or resources online where you can actually find that info. Uh, there were some. 
but uh, you really had to dig. What we started doing was like, what would it take to travel from Tijuana to Mexico City and then from there to the biggest or settlement in uh, Guatemala and, and so on, right? So that way, uh, we were able to kind of start like piecing it together. I mean, really, really had no idea. I was like, where are the ruins that everybody talks about? You know, it's definitely not lined up with that, you know, route. It eventually came all together. So vehicle wise, how did you decide what you were going to drive? That was a process. We had a lot of time to think about that as well. Now, I've, I think that it's a no brainer. I'm super biased. <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> it's but, easier now. <laughs> it's easier now. But back, yeah, back in the day, I think the, the, the first reference was uh, van life, the van and like being able to be self-contained and uh, have your kitchen and be able to sleep in the car. I started re- researching that a little bit more. Even back then, like the prices for in the West Coast for a Vanagon, a, a one in good shape, 20 years old was like $30,000. And was like, that's very expensive. And heard stories from other travelers like uh, Dry Natural Drive and, you know, like the endless situations that they found themselves in, like swapping engines, um, you know, in different continents and like having to wait for weeks. And uh, we even became close friends with the Vanagon uh, Club in up in, in Washington. Super tight group of friends up there. And every time that we went out with them, someone broke down. So it was like, ah, maybe not the Vanagon. <laughs> so I started looking at, you know, the, the usual suspects, uh, Land Rovers, Land Cruisers. At the time, we didn't have, I say this, but like, you know, we didn't have the, the financial means to to buy a, a Land Cruiser. Uh, so we started looking at older ones. And then I thought something interesting was going on in Venezuela where like you could bring a vehicle in and then like pretty much profit from it, like quite a bit. Just very a very volatile situation with the currency exchange that was going on at the time. I said, well, maybe we just get a new vehicle. I'm not very mechanically inclined. So that, that was a appealing to me just get a car where like you know we're not gonna encounter that many issues and, and end up going with a forerunner trail edition at the time in 2012 it had like real lockers and it, it seemed like the right idea we went for it one of the other stories that i love was that you went around to a bunch of mechanics in the area and asked them which vehicles broke yes. down the or which ones they worked on the least i thought that was genius yes. like a little bit of investigation and what they obviously said some sort of Toyota. Yes. And that, uh, that's, a, that's a fun story because we almost I, bought a Land Rover. We all almost bought a Land Rover for sure. Yeah. I went to this dealership to use cars and there was a, a, an L3 for like $6,000. And I'm like, no way. I'm buying it tomorrow. And I talked to the guy, he's the manager of the dealership. And I was so excited. I was so stoked. I think he just saw my face and I, uh, I was sharing what we were planning to do with a vehicle. And he immediately goes, I don't think this is the right vehicle to take down to South America. I asked, well, but, but why? As parts are expensive. You know, there's a few issues, this and that. And I, I, I was bummed out, but he was the person who said, suggested that I went around uh, asking mechanics, what were the vehicles that they worked on the least? Obviously, you know, vehicles that have support or you can find parts for along the continent. So I did that. Uh, I went like a this crazy person stopping randomly every time that I saw a mechanic shop. Hey, you know, I want to do this or, you know, what are the vehicles that you see that, you know, the least or like you work the least on? He said, old Chevys and Land Cruisers and Toyotas. He didn't say Land Cruisers and Toyotas. I was like, oh, immediately what came to mind was, oh, Land Cruiser. And then you outfitted your vehicle. What were some of the things that you decided to accessorize with? Slipper slope. Truth. Yes. <laughs> Especially taking off for the first time. Oh, yeah. Like, we'll talk about your the build that you have now, which is 
quite different from the first build and how you guys decided what you were going to do with that with all this experience that you had. But at the time, at the time, the Overland scene was growing. It was being adopted quite a bit. More things started like popping up accessories. There were no bumpers front or rear bumpers there there was uh options for upgrading your suspension from arb but not from any other manufacturers at the time for the forerunner for the forerunner yeah. uh the newer the newer forerunner uh, fifth gen mm-hmm. um, but because we took so long to actually be ready to leave uh years went by and we we have our our vehicle and, and again things are just like happening right things are bubbling up and like seizures are coming out and like in the midst of it, and it's like we had jobs, and it was a little bit out, out of control. Taysa's making a face right now. <laughs> it yeah. was like a, it was like a constant Amazon Christmas in our house. <laughs> and special thanks to Three Hundred Three Stable for supporting the Overland Journal podcast. Rock crawling, incredible views, and real people with a drive to leave the world better than they found it. It's all in a new documentary presented by Three Hundred Three and stable from the ground up keeping the desert clean tells the story of an arizona nonprofit tackling the massive problems of illegal dumping on public lands watch and learn how a hobby can turn into a movement brought to you by brands driven to protect and preserve the things you love from the ground up keeping the desert clean is available now on youtube search 303 products and subscribe today definitely a lot of uh, unnecessary things as well i mean you know, I think that um, our bumpers and drawers and all these, I mean, there, there was a lot of money that uh, went into it. It took time for us to understand that that's not necessarily the way to go. Right. What but, were some of the first things that you got rid of immediately or like in the first few months? Some of the modifications that, that we did to the vehicle were like, you know, hard mounted bumpers uh, with swing outs and like uh, skid plates and all this stuff. I mean, that's kind of like a pain just to remove it. So that stayed. We had drawers that uh, some of them I had to sell. While on our trip, we took, we talked about this today in one of our presentations. Uh, it's super embarrassing, but like we took all of our uh, scuba gear, including weights. It was a massive duffel bag with like BCDs, regulators. So we overpacked. Suits. We overpacked. <laughs> yeah. Right, because you don't know what to expect. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. You, you want to be ready for everything. So mm-hmm. like we couldn't fit our, our paddle boards. Uh, we couldn't fit our uh, water heater <laughs> to take showers. I mean, a bunch of stuff. I was uh, super frustrated. Some of the main accessories, like some of the main things that we did keep and like were key were our was our rooftop tent. So that was a Magellina um, Auto Home, Magellina Extreme. That served us super well throughout our travels. And we had that a few years even before going on the, the long trip. And so that was key and of course we kept that yeah that's where we met you uh in 2013 my brother from italy came visit and we uh went on this three-week trip through the canadian rockies bc and alberta and we had been following each other Uh, you guys were building getting red rich and i got in touch as we were coming to bc and we met you guys in vancouver remember yeah. Yeah. No, 2013. That was a long yes. time ago. And we also talked fridges at that time. And I, again, come from like a backpacking and hiking background. I was like, what? We don't need a fridge. A cooler's just fine. And I think you guys at that time hadn't decided on a fridge yet either. Game changer. The fridge was awesome. <laughs> yes. Was this the shakedown trip kind of? Absolutely. We thought it was. I mean, we still had 
a lot to learn. But yeah, it was very helpful. So you said that it took you a long time to leave. Why was that? Life is complicated. Yes. So it's not easy to just leave everything right away. But we wanted to pay the truck off. We didn't want to have payments on the vehicle. That was one of the reasons. The other one was I was in the process of getting my citizenship. So that also took a, a little bit of time. My family, as I mentioned, in Venezuela and in Italy. And I, I knew that we were going to be gone for a while, being used to go and visit them every year. So I felt that, you know, maybe this time I brought him over to the U.S., spend like quality time for like a couple of three months. And then after that, you know, I, I will feel better about, you know, taking off. And then we also had some things to pay off. And then we also really wanted to be able to save for the trip. So Absolutely. we had roommates and like we changed different parts of our lifestyle to really kind of fast track some of that saving, especially the last couple of years. Takes time. What were some of the things that you did to fast track the savings? Uh, I guess, again, the roommates, but also just, you know, trying to eat out less. I mean, I didn't end up buying a second car, so I was taking the bus everywhere and we shared the vehicle. Didn't really go out to have drinks. Like every weekend, you know, it's pretty, like, it's pretty common. Just go out for dinner and have drinks with the friends. And uh, we stopped doing that because it adds up, stacks up. We would have them over instead. Like we'd go, you know, have cook or go for a walk instead. Come, come out with us camping, things mm -hmm. like that. And actually, we got quite a few friends to do that with us. Eventually you left. This is a pretty big lead up to the time that you left and then now you're on the road. What were some of the maybe preconceived ideas or thoughts about how it was going to go and how it was going to be that changed when you got on the road? What did you expect? And then what was the reality? Mm -hmm. That's a clearer way of saying it. <laughs> yes. Different things and different kind of subjects, I, I would say. So one of them was our friend Luis Getter, one of the OGs, as we call him, Luis and Lazy. Uh, we met them in person finally after following his uh, travels for a while uh, at one of the Overland rallies. And uh, we had been doing a lot of camping for a couple of years, right? Like doing a lot of hiking and backpacking in a rooftop tent. And Luis basically made it clear that we were not going to be uh, experiencing the same way as we were doing it in the States, and especially in the Pacific Northwest, where like you go out to a national park and a national forest and you have it all to yourself. And it's all in the middle of like a beautiful forest. And, you know, it's like you're going to be camping in dirty parking lots, but volunteer firefighter, uh, you know, compounds, you know, don't think there's going to all going to be like super rosy like you guys have it here so i was like oh wow he was right yeah, <laughs> yeah. i was gonna say we we camped at some uh interesting places like an abandoned playground in bolivia and gas stations and like places we wouldn't camp in canada but that's the reality of it when yeah. you get on the road and that's something you don't necessarily see so yeah. that was good advice also i i was very wrong um assuming that I was very, uh, I was generalizing, making the generalization that Latin America probably wasn't as varied or, or diverse as I thought being from there. I thought the communications were going to be a little bit e like more streamlined, the difference in accents or like the slang. Mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, sometimes I couldn't understand whether they were saying like for me to finally grasp the day to day chats be between people in, in Chile. What, that was hard. And you're so. both fluent in Spanish. So it's really showing you yeah. how different the language can be based on where you are. It's yeah. like me from BC listening to like somebody from Newfoundland yes. in a way. Another one I would say would be the the antro anthropological side of it. It is incredible to to learn and to experience obviously how different like the cultural differences people from city to city, but also 
there are so many uh, still prevalent indigenous uh, settlements and, you know, all across the Americas. Culturally, yeah, that was fascinating. How do you think being fluent in Spanish helped you understand the people in more depth? I guess it's hard because you are fluent in Spanish, so you don't really know the other side of it. But what were some maybe like deeper conversations or things that you learned because you were fluent in Spanish? I think that there's maybe the trust factor happens faster. I don't think that it's 100% necessary to just speak the language. Like if you connect with someone, you connect with someone, right? But I think that it, it helped people open up faster to us, specifically to Ernesto. But to me as well, I think um, I met women that were curious about what I was cooking. Like that was always really special. And I'm thinking I'm making this like super basic stir fry, but for them, they're like, whoa. I've never done that to the pepper before, you know, things like that. Or um, I met a woman when we were camping at our first gas station in Guatemala, but it was like gorgeous. It was, you know, in the mountains in this coffee region and we were making breakfast. My friend Liv and I, and she had some, I think, almond milk and I had some peanut butter or something, which is, you know, not exactly common. Um, She was observing with her little girl and we offered her some food and she just started talking with me about my age and if I was going to have a family and so I told her my age and then she told me her age and basically I thought she was like at least you know 10 years older than me but she was like 10 years younger than me and she had just really been working the land for that many years and so she was you know sun-kissed and different resources than I have these very intimate connections maybe wouldn't have happened if I didn't speak Spanish or maybe they would have but I did feel like we had some intimacy more quickly and trust absolutely I think that it does help have those very intimate moments not with everybody but like sometimes uh, a lot of the stories that we share are uh, stories that like really that they were very impactful and they were just like conversations or you know or around dinner And a special thanks to Onyx Maps for supporting this week's podcast. For me, being prepared is all about having the right tools. One tool I use is the Onyx Off-Road Map and Navigation app on my phone. I use it to find trails and off-grid camping, and I use the fully functional GPS when I'm out of service. We all know that's usually where the best parts start. It's intuitive to use and lets me find open trails anywhere you want to explore with just the tap on the map. Access detailed trail information like difficulty ratings, duration, clearance level, open and close dates, trail photos, and more. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are very helpful for when I want to try to find off-grid camping. And like I said before, I want to make sure that this sticks. It has offline maps. This feature allows me to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when I'm out of cell service. Your phone's internal GPS will give you full navigation capabilities offline, so you always know where you are and how to get home safely. Use code Overland Journal today to save 20% off. What was the moment or conversation that impacted you the most? Or were there a few? <laughs> there, there were a few. I mean, there were so many beautiful ones where like, you know, things weren't necessarily bad. You know, it's just like beautiful moments, like experiences that they had. But I think that some of the those intimate conversations that s- stick with you, those that make you that makes you reflect on how lucky we are, right? Yes. Yeah, so like the very, very um, essential and basic things that we have, like water and food, I think I didn't fully understand until I had a certain moment in the Guajira in Colombia where it's very dry and it's very rural and they don't have that many resources and like some people really do not have enough water and food. 
And we stopped to meet some kids and they were asking kind of for candy and, and money for kind of a toll to cross their land. And this is again in like Guajita in Colombia. And we just didn't understand the, what they, what they needed. And um, we had given out like all of our candy and food and other stuff. And so we passed on some toilet paper to the mom. It was a mom and two kids. And um, then they were pointing at our water bottle. So I passed along my water bottle to maybe like the two-year-old and she just started gulping the entire thing and her older brother maybe who was 10 just was kind of giggling I think out of um, nervousness because I think he needed some too and so that was like that hit me like a hard super deeply yes yeah I think had a situation where I was thirsty like that yeah it's powerful stuff and I think that depending on where we come from we have these glasses that we see out of and to take those glasses off is very powerful and uh, enlightening. So yeah, thank you guys for sharing that experience. What were some of the uh, most hilarious things that happened? <laughs> uh, now that we're all crying here. No. <laughs> uh, I think some of the, uh, I don't know, kind of like traumatic events. Uh, Wait, like, hilarious. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, but because they eventually are the funniest things oh, like, okay, to, okay. to talk about. But like funny right away. I, I have one. Uh, go for it. Okay. So Ernesto, we were in uh, Oaxaca or near actually in the town of Tule where they have this beautiful tree if you're ever there. And they had a local festival going on. And as part of those festivities, they had Toritos, which are basically these like paper mache donkeys with like fireworks inside <laughs> and they place them on their heads like and then they dance around in the square literally and these fireworks are shooting off in this particular celebration they were like from the eldest folks of the community to the very youngest and then at the end they still had some leftover and asked folks to come in from the crowd now mind you in the meantime they're pouring mezcal to all the people in the town they like had gathered money for months for this event and then they just like pour you these mezcal shots so Ernesto was like kind of saucy and all of a sudden jumps up to volunteer to do this torito which basically means holding like fireworks on your head <laughs> <laughs> dancing around to this like very like fun folklore Mexican music it was kind of hilarious I'm glad he didn't start a fire or anything like that <laughs> I, I had a Baja, how do you call those? Yeah, like one of those like Baja sweaters. Do you know what I'm talking about? He had just bought it right in town and he started like Baja, started getting sparking up as he was dancing around <laughs> firework donkey. Yeah. I didn't really know how to, to do the whole thing. So I was just running around and getting really close to like the, the audience. And they were just like yelling at me, just like, go away. Right? Oh, no. like fireworks. I was just like shooting in all directions. And um, he survived. Oh. So did everyone else. How long Dave, were you on the road for? It, exactly three years years and 11 months yeah it's a long time that's so amazing and you ended up going back to venezuela on that trip yes yeah was it both of you because i know that Teresa went home for a little bit at the end so you're both there what was that like after driving this pan-american highway for so many years and then coming back through where you met and where you were born uh, venezuela was was tough uh, because uh, family and the current situation and what they have been going through it made us realize they probably were struggling more than than i thought they were here we were traveling so that was that was hard yeah and i think people ask like what's your favorite country and after and of course we both love venezuela and we would have loved to have really traveled it overland but we did cross by foot from the colombian border to spend time with Ernesto's family for a few months over the holidays i guess after venezuela we had you know a very special time with his family it was very difficult at the same time. And then we were, we still had months and many more countries to go. And in Colombia, right afterwards, 
we just kind of were processing everything. And it was just really, it was really difficult. We really questioned if we should continue, if we should go back home to work, to support, to change our trajectory. But that's not what his family wanted. And we had planned for this trip for a long time, but it really was very difficult to enjoy it, I guess, as much as we were before. So, right. for example, like Colombia was difficult for us, even though Colombia is such a beautiful country. And so whatever you're going through emotionally is going to affect how you experience like the next place. So true. Very, very true. So after these three years, you're wrapping up and you go back to the U.S. You know, I've talked to a couple guests actually about this like transition zone and how it's it's hard to reintegrate. And uh, I think we're always wanting to get back on the road when we go home. But talk about the importance of community in the overland sphere and how important that is to you guys. We have wonderful friends from work. Uh, be proud to the trip. We have built beautiful friendships with travelers like you and, and Richard for years. We were super close to you and many other travelers that we met along the way. The importance of that, um, the support of that community, especially when you get back, it's sort of like the support group that you need when you come back and it's just like you're experiencing reverse culture shock in a way. But it's even deeper than that, I think. I think it's like you come back changed and you hear all the things because people said like, oh, it's so hard to come back. I was like, come on, how hard is it? Like you get a job, you suck it up. (laughs) It was so hard because maybe not that much changed when you left. I mean, they did, but then they kind of didn't. And then you've changed so much and you're still understanding how profoundly you have changed and why and what your priorities are. And it's a lonely place. You feel kind of like an alien. Also, like I came back and I was like, oh, dang, I'm, I've aged. Um, <laughs> of course I did. You know, it was four years. We all have. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so many, there's so many things and so many people come back to so many different things, right? Like you jump into a class or you go back to your old job or you're helping aging parents or I don't know. There's so many things. So the transition, though, is definitely harder than we had expected. And so then the community, the overlanding community, like you guys even just venting of how we're feeling was key yeah it's super important and I think too like putting your passion into something you've put your passion into your next build which I think it's so great to have the vision for the future and to be working towards that through a vehicle we're gonna wrap up soon but I want you guys to talk a little bit about your troopy your Land Cruiser troopy and what you've learned about traveling that you've applied to this new vehicle again I'm just gonna go a little bit back uh, (laughs) yeah of course the the, the whys right yes Um, Thank you. Our trip was extended for like months, quite a bit. So we planned to go on, on again in a, a year and a half and almost uh, four years. We were so into it. It was clear to me that I wanted to continue to travel. And I started thinking, obviously, in a few things that we wanted to change. Being exposed to the elements is harsh. It hit me when we made it to Ushuaia and then the, we had to start driving back because for the first time, we are now, it felt like the beginning of the end. Mm. Right now, for the first time, we're driving north and getting closer to home, which meant that, you know, it's so, sort of of significance. I didn't want the dream to die, sort of. What is the next thing? Right. So you, I have to put the next move in motion, you know, take the next step, put the next plan in motion. And that was like knowing that we wanted to get a, a new vehicle or to be a little bit more comfortable. With inside living space. With inside living space. I started inquiring uh, in different places around the world, like Australia, Venezuela, Dubai, getting quotes. And yeah, so that kind of was the beginning of the new build, the new vehicle. We made it back to the to the US and that was pretty much alive. You know, I kept inquiring and investigating and 
doing a lot of research. We were, we didn't have any money. Like we were broke from the trip, but uh, we had some credit available to us. And I knew that if we didn't make the move, then it was kind of going to die out. So I just basically went for it. I was like, okay, I found the vehicle in Dubai, got in touch with the dealership before I made it back to Seattle. I, on a whim, I bought a a plane ticket to Dubai because I couldn't, I couldn't see how I was just going to be sending X amount of money to buy a car and a foreign vehicle without seeing it. It's not safe or whatever. It was, it was a mad idea. What's the make and model? A Toyota Land Cruiser 70A series. There I was. I had like uh, plane tickets uh, to go to Dubai. Um, Round trip, $800. It wasn't that bad. That's pretty good. Yeah. For Dubai. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The the hotel was, uh, was pretty cheap too. And it was actually really, really good. And I rented a Fiat Panda, like the cheapest thing that I could find to get me, you know, be able to get around. Yeah. I got over there and I really like, we both like scrape every, you know, cent that we had to get this vehicle. There's something else. So uh, I went to Venezuela and bought like some older ones that I was going to restore. So I don't know what I was doing. I was kind of desperate trying to come up with this next plan that was going to help us continue stay on the road and and obviously get our own vehicle. So yeah, it, it really was like, I look back and I was like, what was I thinking? But somehow everything came together. <laughs> Taking advantage of uh, having dual citizenship, got the vehicle registered in Venezuela, shipped it to Mexico, drove it with my dad into the U.S. Started building it with the support of many companies, of course, and uh, most of the, of the work being done by me and friends that were very, very, very helpful. So you did a pop top on there, right? A pop top, the full build, you know, the usual uh, upgrades that you do to your vehicle, suspension, tires, bumpers, uh, some lights and this stuff. But uh, what was really key was definitely the pop top in the the interior. I worked with a friend, the same friend that I went to college with and, you know, was brokenhearted, made me take him out. Oh my gosh, full circle. Yeah. And he designed, was it the cabinet tree system? Yes. Yeah. It was a a joint effort between him, uh, our friend Daniel, and I. Bouncing ideas on how to solve certain like problems with the cabinetry and all that stuff. It was very fun. The build turned out absolutely stunning. So beautiful. It's very clean. It's very classic. It gets a lot of attention here. I think there's a lot of FOMO on the street when you're driving by and people stop you and want to chat about it. And how did you get this here? And I want one so bad. So it's it's fun to watch. But yeah, it turned out really nice. What are your plans? Where are you going to take it? Do you know? We built it with the, the idea of doing the same thing that we did in South America, which was to circumnavigate the continent and do that in Africa. So that's what we really wanted to do. Then COVID happened. Just had to wait and realign, you know, priorities. Uh, also like paying debt, saving. Right now, I think we're pretty ready. The vehicle is like, there's not nothing else or not much else that we can do to it. We have this venture, which is like restoring and, and bringing two pieces into the US. I think that we should be, hopefully we should be ready to ship sometime later this year. We have uh, talked to our friends and put a tentative date for September 1st. Ship overseas, uh, hopefully. And we're still open to kind of where. Awesome. I'm really excited to see what the next steps are for you guys. And um, I guess my final question, this is one that I ask almost everybody, I guess, but if you could travel to any country right now, what would it be and why? I feel like you asked me that the other time and I think it's still <laughs> the same answer. It's like Thailand, especially recently, our friends Joe and Jose um, have been posting all of their fabulous photos of their journey in Thailand and they were fellow overlanders who did the Pan American and I think there they're kind of doing it more backpacking style, but in any shape or whatever manner, um, just 
the beauty of the beaches and it looks like the culture and the food I'm just super drawn to. So I guess Thailand. Nice. That's a tough one. But I th- I think that probably Iceland, uh, New Zealand, Japan, India go to the Himalayas. That was great. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. I so appreciate you sharing your experiences, knowledge and stories with us. And um, if people want to find you online or learn more about your, your trip or the troopies or your next adventure where can they find you our website is overlandamericas.com and overlandamericas everywhere else in social media well thank you guys so much for coming thank you thanks for having us Ashley (laughs) Overland Journal thank you and thank you so much to all the listeners out there for tuning in to another episode of the Overland Journal podcast we appreciate your time and we will see you next time bye